Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm William, and again, this week with me is Samantha. Hi, Samantha. Hi, William. And this week we are talking about a subject that we have not talked about on the podcast yet, but that's so important to our movement. We are talking about batteries intervention and prevention programming, also known as BIPs. That might be a term that some of you are more familiar with. And we have two of our amazing coworkers here, Erica and Diane. Hi, y'all. Hi. Happy to be here. And they are on our support to services providers team, specifically the family violence services sub team, which supports programs in a variety of services, not only their BIP services. So we'll get to know them in a second. But before we jump into this episode, as always, we want to give a trigger warning. We will be talking about offender services, batters intervention programs, and that will bring up maybe some topics around domestic violence broadly about criminal justice response, and of course, talking about offenders broadly. So if at any point you feel like you need to take a break from this episode, please do and join us back whenever you're ready. Sounds good. Thanks for that intro, William, and those reminders as always. Diane, Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. As a note, Diane and Erica are my former team members, or I should say I'm their former team member. I transitioned to prevention from the support to service providers team. So I am very familiar with these two individuals and I'm excited for you all to get to know them too. So Erica, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the movement or here at TCFE? Thank you, Samantha. And we do miss you a lot. (laughs) Just FYI. That's that's great to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. So Erica Raina Brodeg again, working here at TCFE. Very happy to be here. Been here about seven months, so I'm still a newbie, still learning. I think I'm almost there. A little bit more, I'll feel a little bit more confident and take off some training wheels. But my work in the movement, I want to say, began back in um, 2010, maybe, when I started working at Child Protective Services. And so I did a a lot of work with survivors and, of course, uh, offenders of both uh, sexual assault, domestic violence, uh, child maltreatment, went over to a family violence services program, which is a nonprofit center down here in Corpus Christi, right near the beach, and uh, worked there for another six years and working uh, primary prevention, education, and then of course overseeing our battery intervention and prevention programming there. And that brought me here to TCFE. So I'm super excited, learning more every day. That's a little bit about me and how I got here. Thanks, Erica. And y'all, don't let her fool you. Erica has a ton of knowledge. Those trading wheels came off a long time ago. (laughs) She's got so much firsthand knowledge about this specific topic, and we're so lucky to have her here at TCFE. And so that brings me to Diane. Diane, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Samantha. Thanks, William and Samantha, for having us today. I'm so happy. Yes, to everything Samantha said, I'm so happy to be doing this podcast with Erica. She has a wealth of knowledge and a amazing asset to our team here at TCFE. My name is Diane Bocklidge. My pronouns are she, her. I came to TCFE about two years ago, a little over two years. I started working in the movement, I would say around 2013 during college. I began volunteering with Safe Place in Austin, doing community outreach and working in the Child Development Center. And then I moved over to legal advocacy, working in 
supporting survivors who are seeking POs or protective orders in Travis County and interning at Texas Advocacy Project. So that kind of got me on my way to working with uh, systems and survivors around their legal rights and safety. I worked then as well at the hotline for about five years, and they started there in their Love is Respect division, which is working with youth, which I loved, which then merged to do, to be one, the hotline and Love is Respect altogether. When that led me to working as a legal advocate and shelter advocate at Hope Alliance, which services Williamson County. And then eventually to TCFE, where I was able to immerse myself in working with Um, My wonderful colleagues around supporting domestic violence agencies, but also um, BIPs, which was new to me. So in the sense of working directly with BIPs. So I'm very, very excited to have this opportunity to be here two years later talking about this, these programs. Thanks, Diane. Yeah, Diane has such a heart for advocacy and you can just tell in the work that she does. Um, it's it's evident in, in everything she touches. So TCV is so lucky to have both of y'all and we are so, so lucky to have you on our podcast today. Thanks for a little bit of insight into who you all are. And now we're going to open up with an icebreaker. For those who celebrate, we just had Easter a few days ago and a week ago, I don't know, recently. <laughs> And that makes me think of like Easter egg hunts and filling Easter eggs with candy. So my question to you all is, what is your favorite candy? Diane, what what you got for me? I, so I don't really partake in Easter egg candy so much, but I know people have strong feelings about peeps. I've never tried one. I was trying to think of some candy that I've I've tried and I'm just tend towards any sour candies. So anything that like a sour patch, I don't know if that's like a Easter candy person. Oh, not Easter specific. Okay. It doesn't matter. Sour candy, sour candy is great. And peeps, you're not missing anything. Okay. I, am, I am the person with the strong feelings about peeps. <laughs> I was like, I mean, yeah, maybe from what I've heard Samantha talk about peeps before, I don't need to try them. I don't know. But yeah, I, I would I would turn towards like a sour, like a sour patch kid or something. That sounds delicious. Yeah, now I want a sour candy. All right, Erica, what about you? What is your favorite candy? Doesn't have to be Easter specific. I would probably have to just go with the M&Ms, the peanut ones. That's that's my favorite. I can't get enough and I don't have a lot of discipline when there's a bag around. So, a classic. Yeah, the peanut ones are are, are probably my favorite. They, oh. I feel like M and M's has gotten kind of like Oreos, where now they have like all the different flavors, and I'm like M and M's. I need yes. to chill out. Like, they stay in their lane. That's they're doing too much. I agree, yeah. William. I broadly would say that Reese's probably are my favorite. I. I don't know. It depends on the day. Like a Snickers could do do it for it. Like there's going to be, it's going to be like a chocolate with something in it. That's kind of going to be the the top. I do love the sour candies though. So. I'm with you. Aresis is also very good. That's a good yeah. option too. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I love a good sour candy, but for chocolate, I, not Reese's. I, I don't love a peanut butter moment as much. Okay. Like I don't like it enough to be like, yes, I want a Reese's. If I am going to do chocolate, 
definitely a Snickers. Snickers or Twix, something like that, where there's like something in the chocolate. I, I don't mm-hmm. like just like a Hershey bar or a kiss. Like I want something mixed in with my chocolate. So a Snickers probably. Have you ever tried the Reese's popcorn though? Because that is where it's at. Like it's so good. It's not, I know it's probably not a candy, but it's popcorn mixed with candy and it's delicious. So that really turned me on to like Reese's. I do like the popcorn. I don't like the cereal though. The Reese's Puffs cereal. Not a big fan. Yeah. Well, now I have to try the popcorn. I'll give it, I'll give it a shot and we'll see. We'll see. I'll report back. Now that we're all like thinking about candy and the sweet things that, that we might want today, well, let's transition into, into the topic, which is BIPs. Again, for, for folks who may be less familiar with that acronym, Batters Intervention and Prevention Program. And just for, for folks who may not know what that means, what is a BIP? So Battering Intervention and Prevention Programs are accountability-focused educational groups that really work with, you know, either men who have used coercive control, battery behavior with their intimate partner, women who've used force. And it is through dialogue to which the education is delivered and best practice in, you know, to participate in this circle. You know, no barriers. It's very vulnerable. And promoting that positive behavioral change. You know, there's a choice and it's about reaching the individual and asking inquisitive questions, get them to critically think about their choices and making a nonviolent one and a non-controlling one in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a great summary for some, particularly for someone who is not as familiar, right? Uh, accountability being one of the the big words that we hear a lot with BIP. And so I guess one of my one of my questions is, or, or one of the things that I know is that a lot of people think BIP is just anger management, right? That, that they really equate those two things um, when we talk about services or, or programs or therapeutic responses to offenders. Like they're like, oh, just send people to anger management and, and people conflate these two concepts. So if you had to kind of describe the difference or or why they're not the same. How would you explain that to someone? You're onto something, William, because this comes up in group with even many participants enrolled who talk about the anger and really focus in on that. And I think that's also a societal issue. It's like anger is what sort of caused the problem. You know, it's what caused the unfortunate 911 call is how that narrow view is, is set. And one thing to really look at is, yes, you know, anger is a, uh, an emotional response, the human response. We all have it. You know, I'm going to be the first one to admit I got it. You know, I got my moments, but it's about walking back in time almost and really focusing in on that question. Why did that make you angry? And where did that belief come from? walk me through it, you know, let's go step by step if we need to. And so I think that's the biggest difference between anger management and BIP is BIP is going to ask that very important question. Why did that specific thing make you angry? Why did this specific behavior from your partner make you angry? Where is that coming from? 
versus anger management that's going to work more on how to cool down, you know, take a step back, count to 10. And those practices and responses when you're actually feeling the anger emotion versus BIP, who's going to work on even the things when you weren't angry, you know, even when you were being calm and you thought you were being polite, but you were still being very controlling. We're going to dive into those things too. I think following Erica's answers are going to be, is going to be so difficult because Erica is so <laughs> experienced in this area, but I think Erica really got to the, the root of it there is that, you know, abuse intervention programs are about addressing the underlying belief system that is perpetuating the actions against one's partner or the harm that someone is causing their partner. And that can be separate from anger. Someone could have anger in a lot of different aspects of their life. Like I can be angry at, you know, when I talk to customer service people, when I, when I do this or this and that, and that can still be rooted in abusive beliefs and controlling beliefs. But when we're talking about inter- intimate partner violence, like we're really trying to break down the beliefs that that people hold that make them feel like it's okay to control their partner, to impose or use violence or emotional abuse or financial sexual coercion, all of these things in a relationship to maintain power and control. And that's something. That, that kind of separates those two two programs because we really want to make sure we're we're focusing in on those belief systems and the choices that are made in intimate partner violence. I think that's such a great distinction and it's so important I think for people to understand that, particularly people who have decision making power in uh, the criminal legal system who are sometimes ordering folks to attend these kinds of programming. It's really important to get that distinction. Right, because you don't want to send somebody to an incorrect or an ill-fitting program because it's not going to have the results that you are hoping for. So I think that's such a great distinction to point out. And Samantha, you bring up another point. Let's talk a little bit about how BIPs work. And I know that they work, they work very differently across the country, depending on the state that you're in. So we can focus on, on Texas and how it works here. But, but what does a BIP look like? Like, like how does someone get to BIP? How, how long do they have to be in BIP? Like, what, what, is, what is the structure, for lack of a better word? So great question, William. And I'm glad you stuck to Texas because I am clueless about other states. So in Texas, we do, or BIT programs are following some accreditation guidelines in which gives the minimum on how they they need to operate. And that would include how someone gets to BIP, how many hours spent in BIP or, or weeks, if you will. So typically in the most popular referral source is going to be through the criminal justice system, just due to the historical setup of such programs and, and how Unfortunately, the first part of intervention is coming after an arrest, you know, and and I can probably get into a whole soapbox about that, but I'll stick to the question. So that that's the most highest referral uh, source to which, you know, someone is either court ordered, um, it's part of a protective order, it's part of uh, their probation, or unfortunately, sometimes it's part of their parole conditions, uh, pretrial conditions. So that route is to, to give some examples. Of course, we we are, BIPs are often open to volunteers. You know, if you've recognized that 
you need some help. You know, you need someone to hold you accountable. We had a volunteer who who talked about this being his accountability check-in. He wanted to make sure he wasn't being a, well, he used some colorful language, but it was his way to check in and make sure that he was in fact not being controlling or, you know, abusive. And he needed someone to, to put that mirror in front of him, if you will. So it is open to volunteers if family recognize, hey, we, we want our loved one to get some help. Um, this behavior is unacceptable, et cetera. So not very common, but it, it's open to, to those who, who would like the intervention. Typically, the discretions at the program, it could be a minimum of 18 weeks to 24. I think one program in Texas actually does a 52-week fit. So it's pretty, it's pretty intense and lengthy. Yeah, and I, I love what you said, Erica, and I want to highlight that for, for folks that these programs most of the time do accept voluntary participants as well. Because it's important to remember that not all forms of um, abusive behavior or coercive control are illegal. And so just because somebody hasn't utilized tactics or more likely been caught for using tactics that are illegal, that does not mean that that relationship is free of abusive or controlling behavior. And so there's no need to wait until a person has been arrested or had some sort of encounter with the criminal legal system to access these services. There's a lot of reasons why people could or should access these services prior to that point, just for the sake of having a trust-filled relationship with their partner and a healthy home environment for their partner or their children. So yeah, I just really wanted to highlight that. I think that's such a great point that you brought up that that it's it can be voluntary. You don't have to be court ordered by CPS or by probation or anything like that. You can you can access these on your own. So can you tell me or can Diane one of y'all tell me a little bit about what a day in the life would look like in a BIP group? Like if if I were to walk in and sit down as a BIP participant, what does that flow look like? What, what, what would it be like? Well, I could answer that, but again, I think maybe Erica is better suited for this question as like, I myself have never been facilitator of a group. I've worked in advocacy settings where people's partners have gone to group, but I can't speak to facilitating a group. At TCFE, we are contracted to audit groups, but, and so we have observed groups and I have participated in trainings and been sitting in groups, but have not facilitated. So I definitely want to come back to some of the other points you were making before Samantha, but I'll let Erica answer this particular question more in depth first. Okay. I can share. And Diane, yes, I want to hear those points because that was some rich conversation earlier, but typically group in our specific program, we get in the room get, you know, get everyone prepared, give the participants 15 minutes to sort of get in the the headspace, get in the presence of the moment. Even prior to group setting, we'd be pretty clear with the expectation that BIP is there to challenge. Or if they're feeling a little like, oh man, you know, she's kind of picking on me or what have you, then then it's it's working because we're going to ask, you know, some pretty heavy questions. So we do give them that 15 minutes to really 
get in the headspace and get, you know, if they need to get a drink, they had to use the bathroom. But then the expectation was after the 15 minutes, we'd go straight to group. Everyone sat in a really close circle. Again, it's very open, very vulnerable. And you would start with stru- the structured, and I can't stress enough how much structure is helps keep the room safe for participants. Um, you know, they, they know what to expect. They know we're going to do an intro. We're going to do a successes and challenges check-in. Then we're going to go to the lesson or the theme that we've outlined for dialogue. And we're going to talk about some heavy stuff. And so at the end, it was just a matter of wrapping up the last five minutes to debrief. And then, of course, sticking around after in case a participant wanted to debrief one-on-one. But that's generally the setup. And in those groups, do, do you, is it required that there are more than one facilitator and that they are particular people? Like, I mean, you're not just going to throw anybody into this room to facilitate a group, right? So like there's some training requirements and some expectations of, of the folks who are, who are leading these groups, right? I can speak a little to the training requirements for uh, facilitators in Texas. So we are guided by the the Texas Department of Criminal Justice guidelines that that outline the training requirements for providers. So once a program receives accreditation, the requirements, or while it's receiving accreditation, the requirements for facilitators would be to obtain the 40 hours of required training which is going to involve 25 hours of BIP-centered training and 15 hours of family violence training, which encapsulate like multiple different themes and, and is generally approved through CJAD or, or as we're contracted to look at trainings as well, um, is approved through us that to fit those two categories. And then that is something that they have to maintain over staff development cycles of two years in Texas after they receive their initial training. You can be licensed, but you also do are not required to be a licensed practitioner to facilitate groups. Erica, did you have any more to add to that part? No, Diane, that covers it. I think um, some, so as like a general idea of BIPs in Texas, part of the guideline says that they have to choose a curriculum that kind of, as Erica was talking about, you know, their themes for the week and the group that that's what they're going to discuss. So it's a curriculum that kind of guides the discussion and it guides the behavior change for the group. And so some curriculum or some curricula have outlined that it's preferable to have two facilitators. Uh, William, to your, to your question, I think that was the second part. <laughs> um, that it's preferable to have two facilitators and it's even more optimal <laughs> to have a man and a woman co-facilitate the group together so that they can model healthy dynamics between a man and a woman. Um, and that gives an opportunity for, for example, the male facilitator to show respect to the female facilitator and to you know, show that uh, he values her opinion and her insight and to give her the floor and that she's, you know, can lead the group. Um, and so that sometimes is stated as like a preference, but 
I don't think that, I mean, that is very like resource heavy. And so that might not always be an option. And it's, and I don't know that that's the ask of every curricula that is available, but I think I've heard that in, in some curricula that that's something they recommend. Now I can speak a little on one of the curriculums that's used in Texas that I was able to attend their training is men's stopping violence. And that was a training that I attended when I first started at TCFV and was very, very, I'm very happy that I got to attend this training when I did at the beginning of my work here, because they really promote ideals of men really engaging men in, in ending violence in communities. And Of course, understanding that violence is perpetuated by all people across all spectrums of of gender and race and class, but really also evaluating the the systems that are working, the systems of oppression that are working and occurring that are supporting violence across these spectrums. And so this is one of the curriculums that's highly used and pre-approved in Texas. And I think it really drives an important message of of what like what are we trying to do with abuse intervention programs right like we're trying to promote safer communities and and have community accountability like past just like criminal justice involvement and systems that we know to be inequitable and so how do we promote safety and abuse free communities like, yes, in BIP, in these groups, in these conversations with people who have caused harm, and then also like outside of that and acknowledge the intersectionality of the violence that is perpetuated across across spheres of community and community involvement. So that's one of the curriculums. And we could we could probably have someone on from that curriculum or one of the other curriculum. There's many really fantastic curriculums that address different parts of the work. And this is an evolving work, abuse intervention work. And so, but that's one that I would, I would highlight as being a very exceptional model in terms of thinking about violence in communities and how we, how we can move forward. I love that you brought that up, Diane. And at our TCFE's recent battering intervention and prevention program conference, that's a theme that we really highlighted was how just what you're talking about, just BIPs, the, the main goal of BIP is yes, behavior change and accountability. But if we're looking past that of what our true goal is, is yeah, safety in communities and survivor safety. And, and when we take a step back and look at that holistically, I think one of the ways that we talked about that happening is through community partnership and how can we build up BIPs and how can we take what's being, what's happening in BIP and expand that out into other sectors of the community. So, yeah. So I think that's a really important part for other stakeholders to to think about and say, you know, do I know (laughs) what the local BIP is in my community? And do I know like what they're doing and, and the programming that they're offering and how can I lift that up and how can I connect with them so that I can do what I can do within my own space to, to reinforce what's happening within those programs. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you really touched on it well with that because BIP really like it's, it's a, it's a fraction of what Samantha mentioned before. It's a fraction of 
the violence that is happening. And also we know like if our referrals are coming from the criminal justice system, you know, those, those referrals are going to primarily be referring people who are highly affected by the criminal justice system and, and more policed and more, more highly arrested communities of black and brown men generally. And so those are, those are pieces that like we as a community need to evaluate. It's like, yes, BIP developed in Texas has is an alternate option to incarceration, right? And so there are positive things about that. And then how do we continue to grow and build programs that are equitable and and address these inequities in, in these services? And yeah, so Samantha, you touched on it really well. And how do we think about that in community partnership? And like other ways of like going past, like what is, after you leave a group, like, you know, what does that look like past group? Like, you know, a lot of some, some groups offer that you can come back whenever you want, or, you know, other offer other ways to be involved in the community past group. You know, there's ways to be involved with faith communities, with other agencies, you know, a lot of, you know, something we want to promote is really, really good partnerships with the DV programs and other social mental health agencies and other agencies in, in communities. So those are all things like that. We, uh, as a, as a whole, as a community, as a, as a society can work on and, and work towards. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I, I love what you're saying because I think that so often there is a lack of community engagement and community support and not only around BIP, like, so BIP, BIP is its own, Thing because it's about offenders and people's stigma and like their preconceived notions about people who use violence and um, but just generally in prevention even when we think about um, prevention education and the more like standard route when people are going into schools and and things like that it's, it's a similar thing where like in this closed environment of a classroom setting it's easier to get people there, right? To get people to that message of a violence-free society. And then they go back into their community and they're receiving conflicting messages or there is like a reality that's there that's not as idyllic as the classroom setting can be or the group setting can be. And so I think that that same concept transfers to what you were just saying, right? We need, we need broader community support, broader community partnerships to help make a violence-free society more possible. And often that includes supporting people who use or have used violence to not use violence anymore. And uh, it, it's one of those things that's that's hard to get buy-in for because people are uh, afraid uh, or they don't want to commit to something or they've already given up on people. And so prevention work broadly is, is about hope for the future um, and and really having this this vision of of what our society can be and and I think that it's also we've talked about it before uh in in our prevention spaces and that often historically traditional prevention programs have been focused on preventing victimization right teaching generally women how to not be victimized and it's not teaching people how not to perpetrate violence and I think that that BIPs do a lot of service in helping shift that, like by working with people who have used violence um, and saying, you are still a worthy person. Your behavior needs to change and you need to be held accountable for those things that you've done. 
but there is hope for you and there is a, a place for you in society while also saying like you don't have any like rights over this person that you had a relationship with right you in some cases they're probably still in that relationship and they're trying to make that relationship work and in other cases that relationship has ended and it's saying like you still have to own your behaviors and own the the boundaries of your partner um and so I just appreciate what you're saying. Thanks. Yeah, I would just kind of add to what y'all were just the the central theme of the conversation, the socially driven factors that really, really play into the violence and how it's distributed and how the recipes and I call them recipes because power and control, it's going to look different for each individual and how it's, you know, um, deployed, if you will. But violence in context was a big big discussion um, in group many times. And I think one of the most challenging themes I've ever facilitated was nonviolence. You would think it would be another one, um, but that one was the most challenging. And I think what really put me on my toes where I was like, I need to take my vitamins next time I facilitate this theme because, you know, predominantly it was Hispanic men, Latino men in my, in my group at the time. And they dished it out like, ma'am, we grew up on the streets. You know, we grew up on the streets. There's gang violence. And I had seen the same thing as a kid. You know, I grew up on those same streets and I knew what gang violence they were talking about. And I knew how violence was so closely tied to respect. And it was about breaking down nonviolence with violence in context. So I get why you would have to use violence in prison. I get why you would have to use violence on the street or on the third hall, you know, at the middle school. What's with the intimate partner, someone you love? Let's talk about that. How does that cross over into your intimate relationship? Where is it? Like, let's dive in. And those were some really you know, deep conversations to get them to really explore what was it that they were protecting? They were protecting their manhood, their hopelessness that they felt when they were young on the streets. They were deeply protecting that through violence because why? Because society said men can only show two emotions, humor and anger, predominantly. And that's where it channels. And so I I do agree. Uh, Looking at the societal drivers of that violence is very important. And I do agree that we cannot end domestic violence ever if we don't address the person who's using the harm and why, you know, and, and really giving them a space to, to change. I think that's such a great, um, great point, Erica, and something that you said earlier, William, about a lot of prevention efforts historically being focused on predominantly women or, you know, survivors of, you know, how to not be a victim, which, you know, that's a whole thing in and of itself. But, um, but yeah, like if we're just like Erica said, if we're not addressing the root cause, so what's, what's a message that we frequently hear for people who are in an abusive relationship? Well, just leave, right? You just need to leave. You just need to leave the relationship. And then 
what all of your problems will be solved and you'll be safe and you'll be happy and it's fine. But even if that were the case, even if just leaving, which there's a host of reasons why that's difficult or maybe not what that person wants to do, but say that they do, that abusive partner or the person who's causing harm in that relationship can then go on and have future relationships using the same behaviors, coercive and abusive behaviors that they were using in their previous relationships because at no point did uh, was there any intervention or prevention with them to address those issues. So that's a cycle that's going to continue on until something comes in and, and stops that cycle. And so that's, that's why BIPs are so important. And something you were saying, Erica, makes me think uh, when you were talking about the theme of teaching nonviolence, that that makes me think of maybe we can share some of the, it might vary, right, from curriculum to curriculum, um, but maybe we can share a few themes that, uh, like some of the topics that are discussed in these groups, so that when we're talking about the purpose of BIP is accountability and behavior change, what um, like what facets of life are we talking about specifically? So what comes to mind is like nonviolent behavior, sexual respect, um, things like that. So can you maybe share a few more themes or topics that are discussed frequently in group? Yeah, of course. But just real quick, Samantha, you brought up the why she didn't leave. And we did ask a group of participants why she didn't leave. And their answers were very interesting. Just FYI. So other themes that that come up often in group or, or, you know, just depending on the curriculum, but some of them are the same, if you will, uh, with the with the topics. But you've got, you know, parenting, any element of of parenting, respectful parenting, uh, co-parenting. And of course, it's not going to be the traditional child development, of course, you can incorporate that. I think it's very important, but it's also going to center around um, any any use of interference with uh, their partner's uh, safe ability to parent their child, course of control, uh, escaping parental responsibility. So there, there'll be those types of topics. Um, you've got sexual respect, which is often very a uh, very hard group to facilitate, I, I'll admit, you know, and you're, you're going to talk about sexual coercion, sexual violence, not all of it meets the Texas Penal Code. Um, and we do have to focus on in on those behaviors that were so often seen as normal. And, and that was hard. That was a hard onion to peel back. And then we talk about sexual respect. You've got uh, negotiation and fairness. I, I know that theme comes up a lot on how to negotiate, how to be fair, you know, what's non-negotiable, what is, what's controlling, what's not. So you can really get some good discussion going with that one. But those are some of the central topics and themes. Yeah, I think that it's good. And, and, and like all of the other things we do on the podcast, like there's so many different directions and side conversations we could have about, about BIP and, and what it is. But before we go, are there any any closing thoughts that you have that you want to leave people with? But we might we might explore doing a part two in the next few months or in the next season of Down the Rabbit Hole. But um, but right now, are there any closing closing things you want to leave with the people? 
I just really appreciate having this conversation and just tying all of the things that William, Samantha, Erica, that you all said right now. I think just pulling apart that accountability piece, like, yes, like BIP is part of the accountability piece of, of creating safer communities. And then like just each of us evaluating day by day, like how we're accountable around community safety and perpetuating in what ways are we perpetuating systems of oppression that that support violence, whether it be patriarchy, white, white, white supremacy, all of these systems are intersectional and part of BIP, which is part of the larger picture of um, ending violence. So I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation and, and hope we can come back and chat with y'all more another time. I was just going to say thank you both. <laughs> yeah, thank y'all for being here. And we will link some resources in the uh, episode description. So for people who are maybe looking for their local BIP or their local program that, that facilitates a BIP, we'll have we'll have a list in the episode description. Um, maybe a few other resources for people to explore regarding what batter's intervention is and, and what it can be. Again, thank you both for being here and, and for being the champions that you are. Uh, and always welcome to come back on the podcast and, and explore this topic or others because y'all do so much other work, not just, not just BIP work. So appreciate you. And uh, for everybody listening, uh, we will, we will catch you next time. Bye.